Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear about a puzzling piece of technology we don't often think about, if ever. The first one turned out to only be a rumor. I speak with Stanford history professor Tom Mullaney about his 2017 book, The Chinese Typewriter. With the Beijing Olympics top of mind, he tells us about the 2008 Beijing Olympics and the conspiracy that was no conspiracy at all. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the metaverse. Yes, why did Facebook rename itself Meta? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Salman Khan, the author of The One World Schoolhouse, Education Reimagined, and the founder of the Khan Academy, a nonprofit with the mission of providing free, high-quality education online for anyone, anywhere. You may surmise what the Khan Academy is. What's important is what it isn't. It isn't just a bunch of YouTube videos. That's right. Actually, it started even before the YouTube videos. I was writing a, a little bit of software for my cousins to give them practice problems and then me as their tutor to keep track of what they were doing. And the first videos were really there to complement these. That's why the first videos, there's things like, welcome to level one linear equations. Like, what's level one? I was like, well, I had a little software module called level one. But the videos took a life of their own. But then once we got significant funding, the vision is actually to continue to build on the interactive side. So now we're a 36-person organization, and two-thirds of that is on the software engineering side, building out the, the interactive quizzes, the simulations. We just launched computer science, the dashboards for teachers. So the videos are still part of it, but I would say they're about a third of what we are. If we looked at the world, if you looked at the world together as an educated world, not just a literate world, how would it be different than it is today? Almost every major problem that you can think of, especially if you think of geopolitical problems, had traced to lack of education. And if you go into parts of the world, you know, you go to the Indian subcontinent, some of these countries, the literacy rate is low and it's ridiculously low amongst women. And so, and a lot of those, you know, and, and when people don't have access to that kind of uplifting things in their life, they, they are more susceptible to extremism, to radicalism. Uh, they can be controlled, so to speak, by warlords and, and politicians and, and whoever else. So, yeah, I can imagine a world, you know, it's, it's a world, and I actually talk a little bit about this in the book. It's not a, just about, you know, this moral argument that we should be uplifting more. There is a I guess, a pseudo-selfish argument that our entire world will be safer. But, but then there's even a better argument that, you know, right now we are probably educating, really educating, especially on a global basis, a small fraction of the people who have potential. And that small fraction are the ones that they're giving us the new therapies and medicine and the new, uh, you know, the new internet startups that are making our lives better. Imagine what happens to the world if we can increase the number of people who understand medicine and science and technology and, and, and writing and, and the humanities by an order of magnitude of 10. We'll, we'll have 10 times better advancements in science, 10 times better advancements in the arts, and, and that'll just make this world a richer place. 
Well, you've got bachelor's and master's degrees in computer science and engineering, as do uh, I am yes. proud to say. Um, now, engineering always tells us uh, when we design a system, we have to include all the users and all the stakeholders or the design will never work. Well, if the ticket of inclusion in this life is education, then any world system we design has to be able to include everybody. The education has been one of these things. It's actually been the determining factor between the haves and the have-nots. And what's exciting about now this time in history is that historically, whenever you want to do something for the underserved or the poor, what you do is you say, okay, what do the rich have? And say, well, that's expensive. So let me create a cheap version of that that I can give to the poor or the underserved. And, and, and that's better than nothing. But what's exciting about some of what, you know, hopefully we're doing at Khan Academy and other folks are doing, and I write a lot about it in the book, you know, Bill Gates famously uses this resource with his own children and even himself, and he can afford tutors. Uh, <laughs> but 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 now the same. He's not resource, doing it to save money. He's not That's doing it to idea. save money. <laughs> and he just finds that this is the thing that his children connect with. But this, now, for the first time in history, what some of the most affluent, connected people in the world have access to, a child in, in a village in India can have access to. That it's not a cheaper version. It's the exact, a formerly unschooled kid in sub-Saharan Africa can now have access to the same resources as Bill Gates' children. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Salman Khan, the author of The One World Schoolhouse, Education Reimagined, and the founder of Khan Academy. Today, its channel on YouTube has more than 5.6 million subscribers, and the Khan Academy videos have been viewed more than 1.7 billion times. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how difficult could it be to build an old-fashioned manual typewriter? Well, try it in Chinese. With the Beijing Olympics top of mind, our first interview is from 2017 with Stanford Chinese history professor Tom Mullaney. There's plenty to learn about the Chinese typewriter with a conspiracy from the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and considering typewriters in other languages as well. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about digital therapeutics and the metaverse. We're coming to the point where a doctor may prescribe a virtual reality game to relieve your pain and apprehension. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Professor Tom Mullaney. At the very top of page one, he quotes from an issue of the Chinese Students Monthly of 1913. The typewriter was invented to suit the English language and not the English language, the typewriter. I asked him, what was the Chinese Students Monthly, and why would they be interested in the design of what we in the West consider a typewriter, especially in 1913? The Chinese Students Monthly was 
probably the most important periodical news avenue uh, venue for essays and thoughts by overseas Chinese students in the United States, which at the turn of the century is a really vibrant, uh, very dynamic group that are at Harvard and MIT and Columbia and then across the Midwest and into the, uh, you know, the West Coast with Berkeley and Stanford and elsewhere. They were not only going about their studies, but they were thinking back to their home country, their homeland, their home civilization, and trying to think through various modernizing efforts that were going on back home and how they could contribute to them. And one of these was the question of the communications revolution, telegraphy, typewriting, other kinds of information technology that were not at that point compatible or uh, amenable to Chinese language and its non-alphabetic writing system. So it was a big puzzle for them. While in the West, the manual typewriter was just exploding. exploding. Every business had it. Typewriter boys, typewriter girls. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody exactly. had them. And yet the Chinese language, it's not an alphabet letter based. Wait, no. wait a minute. We can't put it on these more <laughs> Exactly. Keys. Exactly. It's the one major world language that has neither an alphabet nor a syllabary. So like this, so you put these three these, things together these, and then You put that these things together and it becomes a word and... Every uh, word's a word. <laughs> every word's a word or can be combined with another character to produce longer words. And this was a concept, uh, a phenomenon, a place, a person. And this mode of writing was simply not what the original inventors and manufacturers of the typewriter had in mind. They were completely wedded, and understandably so, completely wedded to the English language at the inception of the typewriter, and more broadly to the Latin alphabet and to alphabets in general. And they did a remarkable job over the course of the first 50 years of the typewriter in the post-Civil War period to expand, stretch the typewriter out to Hebrew and Arabic and, of course, uh, Cyrillic and, and German and French. But the one language they could not get their mind around was Chinese. Well, I love that the first Chinese typewriter wasn't real. It was a rumor reported in 1900 in the San Francisco Examiner right here <laughs> exactly. in San Francisco. It was a figment of imagination that when I first encountered it, it's in essence, if you were to look at it, it is a cartoon of a massive, massive building-sized keyboard, a typewriter. And this uh, typically uh, comparably tiny man, um, you know, because it's scaling up and down these rows and rows of keys. And when I first saw this cartoon, which then kind of got iterated out in different ways, at first I thought, okay, this is a straightforward case of the cartoonist trying to make fun of the Chinese language, make fun of China. And this was a period, of course, just ferocious uh, anti-Chinese racism, anti-Asian racism. So it seemed that way. And then I kind of sat with it for many, many years, and I realized, wait a minute. Yes, it is a denigration of China and Chinese language, but it, it also is revealing something else deeper inside it. Why, when the Western mind thinks of a typewriter, do they immediately think of keys? There is absolutely no requirement that a typewriter have keys. And in fact, many of the earliest Western typewriters didn't. 
Uh, but something, there was a whole wild west of different kinds of typewriters. Typewriters with no keys, typewriters with two keyboards, uppercase and lowercase, all on, you know, one keyboard. Typewriters you manipulated with just one hand. There was a whole wild west, but something around 1900 changed. All that diversity in the Western typewriter died out, and the only thing left in the market and then eventually in the imagination was the typewriter that we now know and love and consider to be synonymous with typewriter, the, the Remington, the Olivetti, the Underwood, the single-shift keyboard typewriter. And so that cartoonist is sitting down and saying, okay, a typewriter is a machine with keys, one key per letter, Chinese doesn't have letters. It has characters. There are thousands of these characters. Ergo, in conclusion, a Chinese typewriter must, must, must be the size of a building with a guy scurrying up and down it. It actually revealed the lack of creativity in the technological imagination in the West more than it said anything about China or the Chinese language. It reminded me of what the answer would be if 30 years ago, you asked somebody, what's a telephone? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, we now have these really huge cell phones, but who would have those? Exactly. Normally, you pick these up, and you've got buttons on them. and Exactly. Thing. And now it's like a phone. It's everything but a phone. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in fact, we have to retrofit smartphones with things that remind us of phones, like the dial tone. The, I love it when people have like a ring on it. Exactly. It's like, it's like yeah, an exactly. And of course, phone. that's just an MP3 file or some sort of audio <laughs> file that's baked into. And in the high end ones, they actually have it vibrate a little. Because <laughs> exactly. when your phone rang, everything kind of vibrated exactly, on the table. Exactly. You know. No, there is no such thing as technology in isolation or in a vacuum. There is only ever technology, whether it's a phone, whether it's a typewriter, in specific physical forms. And um, whatever physical form a technology takes doesn't exhaust all the different possibilities that that technology could have taken. But when it sets into a mode, when the concrete sets and, it, and it's the Remington machine or it's a certain type of thing, it is very hard for engineers and companies and everyday users to imagine that another world is possible. And that's what the students in that article in the Chinese uh, Student Monthly uh, were talking about, that, wait a minute, someone decided that this is what the typewriter is and that Chinese isn't compatible with this. Well, no, 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 that's not the relationship. The typewriter serves language. Language doesn't serve the typewriter. So we've got to rethink the typewriter. Now, these were very interesting students. I mean, in 1916, the New York Times ran a detailed story about, is it Zhao Hukun? It would be uh, Zhou Hukun. Yeah, Zhou Hukun. Hukun. Uh -huh. And uh, his design for a Chinese typewriter, he was an MIT graduate. The headline reflected the nomenclature of the time. Chinaman invents Chinese typewriter using 4,000 characters. Exactly. At the early stages of this history, including the student Joe Hokun at MIT and also another student at NYU, these were brilliant young men. Joe Hokun was the first ever recipient of a Master's of Science in Aeronautical Engineering, the first MS degree in aeronautical engineering ever to be awarded in the United States, was awarded to who is also the inventor of what will go on to become the first mass-manufactured Chinese typewriter. And it, it goes to show, I mean, when Joe got on the, literally when he got on the boat as a boxer indemnity scholar, you know, with his scholarship that 
the money comes from the period of the Boxer Uprising and the suppression force after that has a very storied history. But when he got on the boat with his fellow students to study in the U.S., they were told, you know, you're, you're supposed to go to the U.S. to study so-called useful majors, engineering, mathematics, um, maybe certain kinds of political philosophy, so that you can come home and help build your country when you return. He started out building ships, but he decided, actually, there's something else that we need more, which are modern information technologies for the Chinese language. So he gave up building aircraft to build a typewriter. Uh, and he succeeded in both. Actually, after his typewriter career, he went back and became an engineer back in aeronautical and ship design. But these were absolutely brilliant uh, minds. Hey, an engineer's an engineer. Show us exactly. something that needs building. We're in there. We're in exactly. there. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Tom Mullaney, an associate professor of history at Stanford University. His book is The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Well, you talked about mass production, getting into China. The Japanese had some role in this. Yes, they did. The story of modern Chinese information technology really cannot be told without also folding in the story of Japan for a whole set of reasons. But put simply, Japan shares the same challenges as China when it comes to modern information technology. Now, Japan, the language does have a phonetic writing system called kana. It's you have katakana and hiragana. But uh, a major subset of the Japanese language is kanji. And kanji is simply the Japanese word for hanzi, which means Chinese character. And these were imported into the language many, many centuries ago. And so Japan and Japanese engineers were in certain sense in the same boat as China to figure out how do we participate in this new information technology revolution. And there was a back and forth. There was sharing of information and insights between Japanese and Chinese engineers. A, an even more acute and, uh, and painful history from the perspective of China uh, is, of course, the Second World War or what in mainland China is known as the eight-year war of resistance against Japan, and what in the U.S. is the, you know, the Pacific theater. This, uh, during this time, a Japanese typewriter company, the manufacturer of Japanese typewriters, actually with the force of their, their corporate network, but also at the, with the force of arms, was able, in essence, to take over the entire Chinese typewriter market and hold it for maybe two decades. Uh, and uh, this was a source of, uh, of major embarrassment and, and, and shame for many Chinese typewriter engineers and entrepreneurs, uh, but there was very little that could be done about it in the 40s. It wasn't until the early communist period in the 1950s when China regained control of the, of the typewriter market. Well, there's Chairman Mao. <laughs> Not only do we have official Maoist typewriters, uh -huh. we have uh, Maoist language reform, which is directly, directly connected to how one would design a typewriter. Absolutely. So the, the, the Maoist period, the 1950s and 60s and 70s, is a complex, uh, for many a very painful, but a, but a, a, and for many a very positive, but a very complex period of time that we're still as historians of China, coming to understand more deeply. The book, in the book, the, the Maoist period shows up very heavily in a way I wasn't expecting as, uh, you know, when I set out on this book. 
which was the story of Mao-era Chinese communist typists. And uh, these typists were producing the kind of, you know, repetitive propagandist language that you would expect from the era. They found themselves typing Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong. During the Korean War, there was a massive propaganda campaign of resist America, aid Korea, these various catchphrases. And so typists, as well as typesetters working for newspapers, thought to themselves, well, if I'm constantly typing this phrase or these phrases, I'm constantly setting these phrases, why don't I take these characters and put them really close together on my machine or on my typewriter, on my uh, my character rack in the newspaper hall so that I can reach and just grab them all it's at once. It's a QWERTY moment. It's a QWERTY moment. It's a predictive text moment. Uh, and it has long-standing implications for the structure of Chinese IT. Predictive text only really becomes a major issue, a major player in Western IT in the 90s, really into the 2000s. Predictive text, clustering together these, these words that go together in real speech, has been part of Chinese IT since the 1950s. And this is not something you often hear about, that, that in the case of modern IT, that China, quote-unquote, got there first. We're, we're okay with, with that, with the fact that China invented movable type and paper. and Okay, but in the modern period, the alphabetics ruled the day, right? And when you begin to scratch at the surface of that history, it actually turns out differently than we expect. Now, I do have to say, not everybody got the QWERTY reference, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. If you're sitting at your computer, look down at your keyboard. Tell us what it means. The QWERTY uh, layout, the layout of the letters on the on the keyboard, is kind of one of those those passionate subjects for uh, for typewriter collectors and typewriter files. This and there's that famous story about uh, you know how did QWERTY, uh, how did the arrangement of QWERTY take hold? There were competitors, there were alternates, uh, alternate possibilities. A very famous one being the being the Dvorak keyboard. Uh, and this question of how did it win the day? Um, and this is, this is, as a historian of China and Chinese information technology, I'm also fascinated by this story, but I also think it's a little bit quaint and a little bit small scale. In the case of the... I love it when you talk dirty. Like I, I'm that. talking dirty now. I'm going to talk, I'm, and I, I know there are typewriter files and they are very active online, so I don't know what this is going to... But in the case of the Western typewriter... There was one dominant layout uh, in the case of English, QWERTY, and then maybe one serious contender, Dvorak. And then there were a very small number of other competitors. So we're talking about one dominant and one major competitor. In the case of the Chinese typewriter, every single machine for every single typist had a different arrangement. Every single tray bed of every single Chinese typewriter was customized, was different. So there were tens of thousands of different arrangements that were not really competing with each other, but were that were in the mix, let's say. And uh, so when I see one dominant layout and then one, you know, one main competitor, and then I think to China, and there are tens of thousands of layouts, I think... Okay, I want to invite my typewriter file friends over and show them my Chinese typewriter, and then let's talk about uh, the QWERTY story again from a, from a different perspective. To think that this is just old technology, old language, this 
continues through this day. Uh, you start the book, you're even in the introduction, haven't even gotten to chapter one, with what happened at the Beijing Olympics mm-hmm. in 2008, that language and how they organized the Parade of Nations, it was a problem. Mm-hmm. I, At least for us, not it for was, them. It, it was. It was. <laughs> I, so I, I, uh, the Parade of Nations, the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics and every Olympics, uh, where the various you know delegations, national delegations, march around the grounds of the main, you know, the main ring, is is one that, according to official International Olympic Committee regulations, like in the rule book is supposed to be organized alphabetically in whatever alphabet, uh, you know, in whoever's country's alphabetic order we find ourselves in. So if we're in the United States, it's alphabetic order in English. But we're, if, if we're in a, a Russian city, then it will be the Cyrillic alphabet according to uh, Russian alphabetic order. And uh, this, on the face of it, sounds really generous. It sounds very, uh, uh, very, very Catholic, very, uh, very relativist. It, it embraces all cultures. It embraces the world. It's universal. Well, then the IOC, then, then Beijing wins the, the bid. And, and uh, of course, in the run up to the preparations for 2008, there's an embarrassing moment, which is this will be the first time in Olympic history when the parade of nations will take place in a country whose language has no alphabet. And so what do we do? Uh, and We can't look at the rule. You can't look at the rule. The rule has suddenly been exploded. It has been revealed as a, in the book I call it a, a kind of pretender to the throne of universalism. It has been revealed to be a kind of uh, uh, a fake bargain or a fake universalism. And, and so China, the, the organizing committee, really does something quite savvy and naughty and brilliant. They decide, okay, we are going to organize the parade of nations according to a, a, a sequence that has a very deep history in the Chinese language, but that basically the viewing audience from the rest of the world will have no idea what's going on. And they do it by the number of strokes uh, that it takes to compose each Chinese character in the name of each of these nations, the Chinese translation of these nations. Uh, I go into it, into the actual logic of it in the book. It has a very old logic. It would be very familiar to Chinese viewing audiences. But it was, I, I feel certain that it was a decision by the Beijing committee to say, all right, you know, we are a major superpower we are now one of the major players on Earth. This is our first Olympics. Everyone cited the Beijing Olympics. This is the coming-of-age story of Beijing. And uh, we are going to kind of embarrass you a little bit. Um, and the Parade of Nations, when when the broadcasters were, were trying to narrate what was going on... Bob Costas, Bob Costas totally, Lauer, the Matt crowd. Lauer, they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't make heads or tails. They were laughing about it. And there were major conspiracy theories online in the, in the kind of blogosphere that, uh, that NBC had, had cut up the Parade of Nations and reordered it in such a way that the U.S. team would be last so that Americans would watch longer and that would equal more ad revenue. There was a, a two-day conspiracy theory involving hundreds of posts, and it was all ridiculous because it's, it was simply that China sequenced the Parade of Nations according to an alternate logic, a logic that is 
born out of the the history of the Chinese writing system, not alphabetic writing systems. And I, I thought it was a most brilliant move that the that the that the organizing committee in Beijing could have possibly done. I'm speaking with Stanford history professor Tom Mullaney about the Chinese typewriter. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about how the FDA approved a virtual reality game as a therapeutic. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Stanford Chinese history professor Tom Mullaney about the Chinese typewriter. Now, there's been a real resurgence in people loving manual typewriters, you know, and they, they're they all over. They have festivals. They have groups. They have meetups. They have all these things. Um, and yet, even if you eschew that, look down at your computer keyboard again and there is the shift key. Absolutely. Why does it say shift? <laughs> right, right. No, there there are legacies there are legacies that are baked in to not only our laptops and our desktops but but our mobile devices, our iPhones that are the holdovers that are the legacies of the manual typewriting era and for that matter deeper still into the age of 19th century telegraphy. And uh, it's it's one of the joys of getting to do this kind of work and being an historian is because you get to do uh, what's often considered an archaeology, like a dig. You get, to, you get to dig into this object that's in front of you, this computer, this typewriter. And you, and you ask the question, where is the history that is embedded inside it? And where does that come from? Where does the shift key come from. So the shift key is a holdover from 
one of the three, let's call them species of typewriters that used to walk the earth <laughs> back in the, you know, in the late 1800s. There were uh, there was one species of of typewriter. I like thinking of them as kind of mammals running the earth, and one that had all of the capitals and all of the lowercase letters of the of the of the alphabet all on one keyboard. So it's called the double keyboard, and there was no shift key because you, if you wanted the capital T or capital L, you didn't. You just you just press the button with that symbol on it. Well, another species of typewriter at the time is uh, what's called the single keyboard or the shift keyboard machine. And the basic idea there was you have the lowercase letters of the, the alphabet on the keyboard in front of you. And if you want a capital T, a capital S, a capital W, you depress this button, which is called shift, to get to the upper registers of each key, and that's how you can get it. And this is a, this is a brilliant move in the case of English language because... Uh, is an incredibly small percentage of the letters that appear in any English language book are capital letters. It's something like 5% of Moby Dick are made up of, I, I forget the exact percentage, but a very small percentage of all the letters in Moby Dick or uh, in other classic literature is made up of capital letters, and 90 plus percent are these lowercase letters of the alphabet. So it makes sense to kind of displace these uppercase letters to this so-called shift level. Well, uh, when computer designers were building these new machines in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and especially into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they simply copied and pasted the QWERTY keyboard of old with its shift key, with its alt key, with its space bar, and they brought it into this new domain of computing. But the legacy of mechanical typewriting was there and has been there ever since. Well, it's easy for us to imagine, well, just shift to uppercase. I mean, it's just a, it became a, a, an ephemeral, you know, idea. And yet, at the time when they meant shift, you actually, you know, you, you took some, it took some force to hold that thing down. And the whole carriage went up. So when the, so when the striker would hit, it would hit on the capital letter exactly. side, not exactly. on the smaller letter side. Exactly. And it's like, you, I mean, you were going to lose weight if you were going to do some real. <laughs> and you had to, you know, it took time to do that. And yep. you had to have everything be, I mean, this was really, it took some some uh, real energy to do that. So when people say, well, why didn't they just put Chinese letters on the bottom and Chinese letters on the top? Uh -huh. You uh -huh. would have been... I no, mean, it was. It, it, it's it, a humanly impossible. It was absolutely impossible, and um, and it and it's uh, you know what I try to discuss in the book is not only a Chinese story, but also the story of Arabic and Hebrew and uh, Thai, and Siamese, Siamese at the time, <laughs> um, and, and 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 what's important is that not every writing system on Earth, even if it's alphabetic, not every writing system has uppercase letters. Thai does not have upper and lowercase letters. And so when you take uh, these, uh, Arabic does not have upper and lowercase letters. And so there's this question of when you take this, this object, this Remington, this Olivetti, this Underwood, and you begin uh, to take it around the world and try to stretch it so that it fits in more and more and more languages, well, you kind of have to think about all of the unspoken assumptions about language that are already baked into the machine, like the, the idea of uppercase. 
when you build a Siamese or a Thai typewriter, you have to take some of the letters and stick them on the uppercase shift part of the machine, but they're not uppercase letters. And, uh, and the engineers that worked on this in the teens and 20s and 30s had a really interesting approach to language. For them, when they were tasked with building, let's say, a Hebrew typewriter, they, they didn't think, okay, Hebrew is the language of X, and it has this long literary and philosophical and theological. For them, it was an engineering question. Hebrew, to them, was English backwards. So the only thing that I, as an engineer, need to worry about is changing just the carriage advance mechanism on the Remington machine so that when I punch a button, it doesn't advance one way, it advances the other. And voila. We start on the right yep. and we go to the left. And voila, yeah. we have a Hebrew typewriter. There and that's how they thought of Hebrew was, um, was mechanistically. And... Um, and then they, they did that very successfully for many decades. They, dozens and dozens and dozens of languages had their Remington machines and Olivetti. But the one language that they could not stretch their imagination, they couldn't think outside the box, they couldn't think outside the typewriter that they knew, they couldn't stretch this machine to fit Chinese. They had to start over. And that's why I think it really was uh, these brilliant Chinese, overseas Chinese students and Chinese engineers who weren't burdened by these deep-seated assumptions about what a typewriter has to be. They, they started from scratch. They said, this is the problem. How do we build this? Uh, assumptions. Let's put aside assumptions. How do we solve this problem? And that's why I think their fresh eyes um, kind of got them there. Let's also understand that they really understood Chinese and oh, yes. Chinese language. And it's one thing to go in and tell an engineer, a designer about a problem, mm. um, but if they don't experience it, they frequently miss whole essentials. That's very whole true. Whole essentials. So That's very true. Th they knew they had to throw it all out. <laughs> That's very true. There really wasn't an option here. Now, Tom, you didn't sit at your desk and Google all this. This was <laughs> quite a journey. How did how did this all come about? What did you do to bring this all together? Uh, well, it started 10 years ago, uh, fortuitously, accidentally, and uh, I won't I won't burden you with the long-winded story about that, but basically one early afternoon in my office at Stanford, uh, a, a cascade of thoughts eventually left me with the question, of what does a Chinese typewriter look like? And I and I that question formed in my mind. I realized I had never seen one in the flesh. I didn't even know if they existed, but I assume they must. And uh, from that moment to today, uh, took me to not only to China, not only to Taiwan, but but Japan, uh, many many collections across the United States, but then also. Denmark and Sweden and France and Germany and Great Britain uh, and collections all across the world because this puzzle, this puzzle of modern Chinese information technology, how do you fit 70,000 characters onto a machine? How do you build Morse code when you don't have letters? How do you build a keyboard that has no keys? I mean, these really profound questions. It became a super magnet for engineers and eccentrics and linguists and business people all over the world. Uh, and they were drawn to it. 
because of the idea of the lucrative payoff that they could have if they solve the puzzle, but I think also because it tested their minds, it tested their imagination. And as a result, the story of modern Chinese IT is scattered in small collections, in larger collections, all around the world. Um, and one byproduct of this, which, which is, was very exciting, is that accidentally, I sort of woke up one day about three years ago, and I had realized, I looked around my office at Stanford, uh, which was getting incredibly crowded, and I realized that I had accidentally amassed the largest personal collection of Chinese typewriters, Japanese typewriters, Chinese and Japanese word processors and computers, and then, you know, typing manuals and photographs and ephemera, um, in essence, because I had to. I had to build this archive from the ground up because there is no one-stop shop uh, archivally or a museum that really can deliver this all to you. And, uh, yeah, it was – I did not know that some of the <laughs> the biggest insights that went, that fed into this book would happen in in, in London, uh, in uh, in uh, Delaware, in all, just, just all across the world. Insights came um, in, in, every, in every shape and size. And it's been one of the best friends I could imagine. It's going to be very hard to, to let this – to move on, I guess. <laughs> well, we do need full disclosure. And, yes, there was a movie called The Chinese Typewriter. It was 1979. Yes, it starred Tom Selleck. Does this in any way – derail respect for your academic work? Do people remind you of this? Well, I had to, you know, when I, I definitely was cautioned uh, when I set out on this book and, uh, that, you know, this is, this is a, uh, this is a risk. Um, you're, it's, it, it's, it sounds very kind of, it can be done in a, in a, in a, in a real quick, uh, uh, kind of aphoristic way and probably would do maybe would do well but would would kind of never get down beneath the surface of this and people were aware of i don't know mc hammer named or one of the famous mc hammer dances and you can't touch this is named the chinese typewriter and it's this pop culture uh reference and um but this is something i i say to i know my own students and then to anyone who seeks my advice you 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 just have to trust that part of you that is more intelligent than the other part of you that part of you that i guess some people call it instinct but it's when when i heard the words chinese typewriter come out of i guess my own mouth at one point and then i started to look into it i knew full stop i knew that i was going to spend the next 8 9 10 years on this project i didn't know why at the time and I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know where it would take me. But I knew that, and I trusted my gut on that. And I got, I got some very funny faces, including my own advisors. I said, you're, you're going to write a book on what? And I kind of said, you know, pl- you know I, trust, just, just trust me on this, and uh, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, and I, I give a lot of credit to my advisors. I give a lot of credit to my senior colleagues at Stanford. Uh, and of course, to my my friends, um, most of all to my wife Kiata, whose birthday it is, uh, and I, it's just uh, they said, okay, you know, we trust you, we we've got your back, go forth and 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 try this out, and uh, that's why I take such length in the acknowledgments to try to thank because it it I, I had to go out on a limb with this project. Now, Tom, 
I understand this is the first of two books. It is. The second book is not written yet. The second book is almost entirely researched um, because over those 10 years, I was also traveling to collections uh, about the Chinese computer, which will be the subject of this next book. I decided maybe about four years ago that I faced a crossroads. Either this current book was going to be delayed by many years and achieve kind of phone book size proportions and just would be this unwieldy beast, or I was going to give short shrift to this incredibly complex and equally rich history of the post-World War II story of Chinese computing and new media by kind of shoving it into an afterword or a single chapter at the end of the book. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't like either of those options. Um, you know, as a historian, you're always, you always want to do justice to your material, but also do, do, you know, do justice to your reader. And so I said, you know what? I opened all my files that had to do with computing and media and machine translation and uh, optical character recognition, all this stuff that I'm now I'm just very jazzed about. And I just clicked and dragged it <laughs> into its own folder. <laughs> and I said later and um, and MIT Press, the, the publisher of the book, was 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 really wonderful. I submitted a, a two book proposal to them and they immediately understood why it needed to be two two uh, two different interrelated, but two different projects. Um, and I'm very, very thankful for that. So now I can take a step back, I can take a deep breath and ask the question, how does this book want to be written? Because it doesn't want to be written, I can feel it, it doesn't want to be written in the same way as the Chinese typewriter. It's got its own personality. And I'm, I want to listen to it, I want to let it take shape. So it's going to be a while before you come back and see it. <laughs> I hope not too long, but I but would love to when the time long. comes. Tom, thank you so much. And very definitely, come back and see us. Thank We'd you for it. having me. Thank you. Tom Mullaney is a professor of Chinese history at Stanford University and curator of the international exhibition Radical Machines, Chinese in the Information Age. His 2017 book, The Chinese Typewriter, is available in paperback. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Can using technology distract your brain so that you don't feel pain? Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us the simple answer is yes. And the technology he's talking about is virtual reality and something he calls the metaverse. We've all heard the announcement from the company formerly known as Facebook that they've changed their name to Meta. And, you know, the, word, the thought about the idea of being in virtual environments uh, uh, and the idea of a metaverse is actually not new. You know, there's some pioneering medical and psycho uh, psychologists like uh, Skip Rizzo, out of USC and and others that have been talking about our avatar-based worlds uh, for, for decades. Uh, but now we are seeing this ability, particularly in the last few years, where you can pick up a consumer version of a headset, whether it's uh, uh, a HoloLens for augmented reality from Microsoft or an Oculus Quest from Facebook or Meta, or ones that are made by Hewlett Packard or HP that really enable you to, at very low cost, enter this sort of new virtual reality and meta world. And it's really starting to have some really interesting implications um, for health and medicine. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, you know, just uh, in 
now as we're speaking, October or November of 2021, we're seeing uh, the first couple of virtual or called digital therapeutics being FDA cleared uh, to treat patients. Um, one of the big successes of virtual reality as a therapy modality is for treating chronic pain. So an early study was done in, let's say, burn patients who have a lot of pain issues, particularly early on in their course. They could put a burn patient uh, into a virtual reality headset. They'd all of a sudden be at the, the beach or uh, in the North Pole, and they could interact and throw snowballs at penguins and kind of distract their brain and feel like they were a cold environment, and they use significantly less you know, morphine and other opiates for severe pain. And just uh, this November of 2021, a virtual reality company uh, got FDA approval on a new digital therapeutic called Ease VRX. Uh, it's a digital therapeutic using a virtual reality headset and some cognitive variable therapy uh, to help folks, you know, recognize and understand their thoughts and patterns around pain and to help uh, moderate those. And so in their study, uh, they did an eight-week study of 179 individuals with lower back pain. Um, and they have to use this Ease VRX platform and others use more of a 2D, less virtual type platform. And the folks that used the virtual reality platform, uh, over two thirds had a significant decrease in their pain over a long period of time compared to about 30% of the control. So this virtual reality type of training and, and therapy lasted for three months or more after the study. And we'll see, I think the beginning, this is the beginning of using virtual reality in powerful ways, whether it's for, you know, something common like lower back pain or folks who have really acute pain from burns or more chronic pain from a variety of modalities. So that's one. Um, another virtual reality treatment that was approved in 2021 is virtual reality treatment for lazy eye in children. The, the technical term is called amblyopia, uh, where the brain and the eyes stop, you know, communicating properly and the brain favors one eye. You may have seen kids wearing patches, uh, you know, in their elementary school days. Now uh, a, a virtual reality platform called Luminopia, Luminopia One, uh, was FDA approved to take, you know, the 3% of kids who have amblyopia and instead of sort of patching them and using other techn technologies, put them into a VR, let them watch TV and movies where the weaker eye is trained to watch the movie uh, and the and the better eye is sort of, in a sense, sort of virtually patched. And they had uh, good results after 12 uh, weeks of watching shows for an hour a day, uh, six days a week, 62% of the kids using the treatment had very strong improvement in their vision compared to only about a third of the kids in the in the control group. So another example of virtuality coming to, to therapy. And all the kids said, yes, I want to do this. I want to be able to have to watch these shows for an hour at a shot. Yeah, no one complained, right? Well, it, you know, we want, you know, healthcare in some forms to be fun and engaging, particularly if it's proactive and preventative. But some things we know we're supposed to do, uh, like do our physical therapy after we had, let's say, had a knee surgery or a shoulder surgery. And many folks, they might have the best physical therapist in the world and the best motivation, but they get home and they've got their little paper handouts, they just they don't do it or don't do it very effectively. Uh, and now there's several platforms uh, where um, you can put on a VR headset and it kind of gamifies your physical therapy, watches you move your arm or your leg, makes you pop balloons by moving your head and your neck if you have a neck issue. And that can be tracked by the patient and gamified uh, as well as by their physical therapist or orthopedic surgeon. And, and that's just an example of what sort of blending sort of health and, and other elements into the metaverse. And broadly, you know, this new area of you know FDA approved digital therapeutics is early. There's uh, there's less than a dozen or ten sort of approved therapies. A couple of them are 
around, again, the brain. Um, a company called Pair Therapeutics has a couple of treatments for opiate disorder or substance use disorder. Uh, and it's a, basically a digital therapeutic, uh, not using virtual reality, but an iPad or mobile, which gets folks kind of doing smart cognitive behavioral therapy and is now being paid for and reimbursed. Um, there's a company called Achille Interactive that had the first FDA-approved video game, not in virtual reality, but using um, a tablet where kids play a video game and helps rewire their brain and treats ADHD, you know, better than the usual drugs and with no you know, drug-type side effects. Uh, there's one called Ice RX, which helps diabetic patients track their blood sugar and uh, help tweak how much insulin they take. So these are early examples of, you know, digital therapeutics coming along that are, number one, you know, going through randomized clinical trials, uh, being looked at very carefully by the FDA, and also now have a pathway to being paid for when you prescribe them so that the innovators and the technologists and academics who build these solutions uh, can be rewarded. And just like a drug goes through, you know, sometimes millions or billions of dollars of development, these true digital therapeutics uh, will be here to help, uh, you know, be very impactful for, for prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. Well, first of all, I'm impressed by even, you know, just in general, how much more we know about the brain today and how receptive it can be to, to various stimuli and, and just what happens, what happens there. Um, but I'm especially impressed with the idea that visually, whether it's through virtual reality goggles and everything associated with that and controls or games that might be on a tablet, how much information can come in through your brain and, and how you can be changed by it. Stanford, uh, Children's Hospital has pioneered where kids who are about to come in for a, a procedure or a surgery, they they kind of go through the virtual experience at home in a VR headset. And so they went, when they actually arrive in the pre-anesthesia you know anesthesia room and the operating room, they're much less stressed and uh, ready for what's coming. Uh, we're now seeing that the next generation VR headsets will also do eye tracking. And so they can look at your emotional state. They can make you as a virtual reality avatar interact differently. They can track your... your uh, potentially your brain waves and your heart rate and your heart rate variability. So they're going to start, you know, not just giving us data, but recording it. And we're going to learn how to optimize these as we enter the metaverse. And our future medical visits, you know, will not just be telemedicine on a screen or laptop, but we're going to put on the headset and be uh, in a virtual consult with our cardiologist or, uh, or, or our workout coach or our nurse or a dietitian, or we'll meet increasingly socially health health and health is social now there's a variety of platforms where you can go into vr and watch a, a movie with your friends in vr but also we'll see support groups coming together and you can show up in any sort of avatar you want many folks who might have everything from autism to physical or other disabilities uh, can kind of present themselves in new ways and that can be really empowering so lots of opportunities as we enter this sort of new meta uh integrated connected uh digital age of, of health and and, and meta medicine now, I know you mentioned one of the VR treatments for chronic pain was recently approved by the FDA. I have to kind of wonder, how does the FDA do this in terms of how do they... It, I, I'm kind of a little speechless here. It's like we're used to putting a drug in our body, but the whole idea, it's a medical device that you're using and there are effects on the body and can be measured, and as such, should be going through the FDA. Right. I mean, the the standard highest level proof for any intervention is the randomized, hopefully double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Sometimes you can't have full placebo control. You're in a headset or you're not in a headset. In the case of the EaseVRX platform uh, approach, they you know had half of the 
the uh, folks in full-on VR, and the other using more of a two-dimensional uh, virtual reality program that didn't use the cognitive behavioral therapy element. So it's a, a bit of a direct comparison. You're, you're giving two different therapies. Doesn't mean that the other arm didn't have some effect. It still had, um, you know, a 30% reduction in pain compared to let's say 60 plus percent in those in the full ease VRX modality. So like anything else, you need to show that it works and it can't be anecdotal. You know, another piece I think we've talked in prior episodes is the ability to use our new, you know, virtual uh, elements to optimize our, our health and wellness. Um, early in the pandemic, I spent a hundred days doing virtual reality workouts in an app called uh, supernatural where you, you know, take these virtual bats and these balls come at you and you're with music and a coach and I get my heart rate up to 160, 170 and I can compete with my friends. They've now added boxing elements. That's been very impactful and also as a social element uh, to folks, you know, who want to get a virtual workout. And again, you might be in a small space, but you can put on the headset and be on the moon or on the beach or a beautiful uh, top of a volcano. So uh, these are getting more engaging. And I think we're going to see more examples of Know, even simple VR. Many folks who are listening might have a Peloton when you're, you know, you're, you have a virtual community around you and a gamified sort of race where you can compare yourself to others, but also be watching the instructor or be doing a virtual reality uh, biking or um, rowing machine element where you could be fully immersed and distracted from, you know, just being in the sweaty gym or your sweaty bedroom on a, on a VR bike or a, or a bike. So lots of ways to integrate these. I think it's going to get really interesting as, as we go forward, as we can sort of blend the experience, uh, the digital data, data. So when I'm doing these VR workouts, I have my you know, smartwatch on, which is also tracking my heart rate, helps me get into the right zones. That can help me sort of scorify it and spend the right amount of time to optimize for my physiology. And again, it's also sort of social. You can be, you know, in a virtual environment with other friends or competing with them on a leaderboard. So this metaverse, you know, whether we like the founding companies or not, um, is going to become more and more important in, in both health uh, and, and medicine going forward. Well, Daniel, you always amaze me and you certainly did again today. So uh, thanks for coming in. Uh, we'll see you uh, online or maybe in the virtual space in the near future. See you, Myra. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.